Well, good evening. We live in a culture that I think is deeply and profoundly confused about all kinds of things. It used to be that Western culture and Western society was driven in large part by a system of thought and a philosophy that was called modernism, which is the basic idea that there are objective truths and principles that govern the world as we know it, and that not only do those kinds of objective truths exist, but that they can be known and discovered and learned by logic and reasoning and scientific study and, and all the rest. And there has been growing in Western culture for some time, since before I was born, a very large and very loud group of people who seem to be bent on obliterating that kind of thinking, sponging it out of Western culture. And we call that postmodernism or the postmodern movement, which I'm sure you've all heard of at some point. And that movement touts the idea that truth as a concept is in fact totally subjective and relative to individual experiences and individual perspectives, and that it is something that cannot be known definitely by anybody. And there are all kinds of examples we could look to in modern culture for that kind of thinking. And so we run across headlines like, <laughs> is there an on button for it, David? There we go. Like these. I didn't do that. Did you do that, Dale? Okay. I turned it on, so I think it should be okay now. <laughs> Headlines like these. Articles that propagate the idea that truth is relative to individual perspectives and opinions. The basic point being that your idea of gender, as an example, and my idea of gender and what it should be and what makes it what it is and what it ought to look like, our ideas might be totally different about that, and so therefore gender as a concept is totally subjective. Or marriage, your idea about marriage and my idea about marriage as an institution and what it ought to be and what it ought to look like and what makes a marriage good, our ideas might be totally different. And so therefore marriage as an institution is totally sub subjective, is the basic idea. This article, the third one down, that talks about don't fall into the nuclear family parent trap, that article makes the argument that it doesn't matter if a child has a mother and a father, just as long as the child has two parents that love him or her, the child. The argument being that a child with same-sex parents is in just as healthy a family, if not even more so in some cases, than a child who has a mother and a father, is the argument of that article. And that kind of thinking is only possible if you buy into the postmodern notion that family, or anything else, as an institution ought to be subjected to my feelings about what it ought to look like, or my desires of it. And these kinds of headlines, and these kinds of arguments, and these kinds of ideas can be, at least to me, intimidating and shocking. But I think sometimes we, we tend to give these kinds of ideas too much credit by being intimidated by them, at least I do. They aren't new, and they aren't unique, and frankly, I'm not trying to be nasty by saying this, but they aren't intelligent. I mean, just take some of these words at their face value. They just aren't. And beyond that, the Bible speaks directly to these kinds of ideas, not these specific issues, but certainly the ideas behind them. Because Gnosticism was a popular philosophy in the first century. We read about it in the letters of John and in other places. And it wasn't the same as postmodernism, but it also touted the idea that truth was kind of a cosmic 
ethereal, individualistic wisp out in the atmosphere somewhere that had to be discovered on an individual level, usually by means of escaping the things that were perceived to be true and real about you. And the fact is, cultural movements like that and like this always make their way into the church in some way. They always do. And the Bible makes it really, really clear that the more confused a culture becomes, the greater responsibility Christians have to be absolute stalwart pillars of things that are true. That was true then, and it's true now. And so that's what I'd like to talk about just for a minute tonight, is the idea of pursuing truth in a confused world. Because that's the kind of world that we live in. And I'd like to do that by examining three fundamental claims that the Bible makes about truth and the nature of it. The first one being that it exists at all. The Bible claims that objective truth exists. And there's all kinds of places we can look. For examples of this claim, the first one, I'm going to go through these passages kind of quickly. Uh, The first one is in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 and verse 5 and 6. Which reads, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. The context of this psalm is that it's a prayer of confession and repentance from David, presumably about his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And David acknowledges here in this passage that his understanding of his own behavior and the nature of it, his understanding of that is defined by God's truth, not by a moral code that he invented for himself, is the idea. Or in Psalm 119 and verse 160, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Or in Psalm 86 and verse 11, teach me that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. The books of prophets, as we might expect, are full of commentary on this particular issue about God's truth. Like in the book of Isaiah, chapter 45 and verse 19, God says through Isaiah about himself, I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. And as we would expect, Jesus' teachings are consistent on this point also. In in John 14, and verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Or a little later, in John chapter 16 and verse 13, Jesus says to his apostles, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And just a page over from that, in John 17 and verse 17, this is a piece of the passage that Devin read for us a second ago. Jesus prays for his apostles and ultimately for us, and his prayer for them in verse 17 is, Sanctify them in the truth. Not a truth, not their truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So biblical authors could not have been clearer about what the standard for truth is. Because we only looked at a few passages, but we could look at others. Nearly every mention of or argument about truth in the entire Bible is in the context of a referral or a deferral to God's words. Which is... That means, if if we're going to make the argument that objective truth does not exist, that is to say that God does not exist. Because the clear, unmistakable claim of the Bible is that God is himself truth. Which gives particular meaning to his words, does it not? Because it's not as if the Bible is regarded as true by some kind of 
outside standard that we apply to it. That's not, that's not how any of that works. We don't obey the commands in the Bible because they line up with our moral compass that we came up with on our own. The Bible is itself, because it's the words of God, the objective standard by which things are found to be right and wrong and true and false. And God could not have been clearer about the fact that he, under, he expects his people to understand that. That objective truth not only exists, but that God's words are objective truth manifest. There's a documentary that came out last year sometime called What is a Woman? I have not seen this documentary, so I'm not recommending it. I have no idea if it's clean. I don't know what's in it, so I'm not saying you should watch it. I have just seen a clip of an interview between these two individuals here. The documentary is a critique, as I understand it, of the transgender movement in the United States and particularly how it tends to affect young people. And there's an exchange between these two individuals that is pretty remarkable in the clip that I saw. This man on the left is the guy who put the documentary together, I guess. He's a journalist of some kind. And this woman on the right is a gender theory, gender studies expert that he interviewed for the purpose of the documentary. And they have the following exchange. He asks her, what makes me a man? And she answers, it's a constellation. <laughs> that is a great example of postmodern thinking. Because that means nothing. And at the same time, it could mean literally anything, which is exactly the point. If you're a postmodernist, masculinity is supposed to be anything to anybody at any time. And so he responds to her by saying, in truth, in reality. And then she cuts him off by asking what is a very important question if you're a postmodernist, which is, whose truth are we talking about? That question, and questions like it, that's the backbone of postmodern thinking, and particularly the notion that there's no such thing as objective truth, particularly objective moral truth, and that each individual has the ability, and not just the ability, but the fundamental right to determine for themselves their own version of what is true, about whatever it is they want. And I, haven't, I have not been alive all that long. I'm only 22. I haven't studied that many things. I certainly have not studied every kind of philosophical argument there is, and I never will. But in my experience, I have not yet encountered an argument or a system of thought that more egregiously spits on the face of basic biblical principle than the idea that there's no such thing as objective truth. It is cowardly. Not to say that the Bible is wrong. I would be, I'd be more okay with that. At least you could argue with that person but to say that the Bible can't ever be regarded as right or wrong because that would require an acknowledgement that there are objective, principled standards for things. It's a backwards, upside-down way to try to believe in everything and in nothing at the same time. And God says, that's not possible. It can't be done because truth is not a constellation. Truth is what God says it is. And God says, my words are truth and they exist. Period. And so that's fine, but that leaves us with a couple of questions. Like, if truth exists, does it exist in a way that I can know or access? Can I know the truth if it exists? And the Bible says, yeah, we can. Truth exists and we can know it. 
In John chapter 8 and verse 31, Jesus says, beginning in verse 31, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So Jesus outlines here a very simple but important principle that the backbone of knowing and understanding truth is an effort to be in God's word and in Jesus' teachings. But in fact, the Bible argues, it can start even sooner than that. If you look in the book of Romans, chapter 1, Romans 1 and verse 18, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So God expects people to know at least that he exists and that he is powerful. And in fact, if you turn just one page over in Romans chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul makes the argument that it is actually in the nature of people to understand this on some level. Romans chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul writes, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So God created us to understand him, and to know him, and to know his truth, and to know his laws. And by the way, everybody on some level, even if it's a very fundamental level, everybody knows this. Because when we have a person who comes along in the world who literally does not have it in their nature to discern the difference between right and wrong, what do we do with that person? We put them in a padded room and we call them a sociopath or all kinds of other diagnoses. To, to people who struggle with that. Because everybody in the world understands there is something fundamentally not right about a person who does not have it in their nature to discern the basic laws of right and wrong. And Paul's argument here is more specific than that. But the basic point is the same. That God created people to know the truth. And now that requires an effort from us that does not just happen. If you look over in the book of Acts, chapter 17... Acts chapter 17 and verse 24, Paul here is addressing the Athenians in the Areopagus about the shrine they've built to the unknown God. That's what he's talking about in this section of verses. And in verse 24, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And then he goes on to quote some of their own poets to finish his argument. But the point is, if we look for him and his truth, we'll find it because it's close. And now that requires an effort from us, but the fact is truth is not so ethereal and vacuous and obtuse that we can't possibly wrap our minds around it if we apply ourselves to it. So the Bible says. There's a great example of this in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 
and verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that's Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And in that question, we can observe something like the postmodernist's dilemma. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's not a complicated statement. Aha, but who? Who is my neighbor? We could really lean into the postmodern flair by asking, what is neighbor? What is the constellation of neighborness? Because think about it. Neighbor might mean one thing to me because I grew up in a suburb. And it might mean something different to you because you grew up <laughs> somewhere else. <laughs> Not in a suburb. <laughs> and it would mean something different to us than it would have meant to Jesus' original audience because they grew up in a crowded ancient city 2,000 years ago, which we can't relate to. And in fact, it would have meant something different to Jesus on an individual level because his idea of neighborness and what that is would have been shaped by experiences that only he would have had as an individual. So by the time this teaching has exchanged perspectives that many times over this much time, there's no way... For any of us to know really exactly what Jesus meant when he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Postmodernism. That's what that is. And actually, we can play this game all day because we haven't even, haven't even cracked the question of what Jesus meant when he said, love your neighbor. What does that mean? Love. And you see how we could just go around and around like this. And the, the lawyer doesn't say all of that. But I think Jesus' response to him demonstrates that that kind of obtuseness was what motivated the question. Because Jesus tells him the parable of the Good Samaritan and then just asks him point blank to make the application. Which he does, of course, because it's not a very complicated teaching. And Jesus says, okay, so you know, you know who your neighbor is. You probably knew before you asked me. And in doing so, demonstrates quite plainly... That to understand Jesus' teachings and the Bible in general, there is not some kind of secret we have to spend our entire life searching for out in space. That is not how God has made his truth accessible to us. He does make it clear, and so do some of the other passages we read and others, that we have to want to find it and make an effort to do that. Which brings us to the third claim that the Bible makes about truth, which is that truth exists, we can know it, and once we know it, we have to do something about it. The Bible claims that knowledge of the truth demands action from us. And there are two biblical examples of this I'd like to look at. The first one is in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 5. First Corinthians 5. And beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Skipping down to verse 6, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
And the thing is here, Paul is talking to a group of people who have already, at least on some level, because they're Christians, they've already accepted that truth exists and that you can know it and that it, like, they already know all of this. And so Paul says, look, your knowledge of the truth demands that you do something about this situation. And in fact, he argues, you don't even have to crack a Bible to figure this one out. Pagans, with just a fundamental understanding of how human beings are supposed to interact with each other sexually, with just that knowledge, they could look in to this situation and think, something should probably be done about this. The knowledge of the truth by these Christians, according to Paul, makes their inaction a total absurdity. And he boils that down quite plainly in verse 8 when he says that the situation calls for not just the knowledge of, but the application of two things, sincerity and truth. It is not enough to just know what the truth is. It's not. There were plenty of people in Corinth, Christian and non-Christian, apparently, who could have on some level figured out the truth of this situation. Paul says that is not enough to just know it. Second example of this is in the book of Matthew, chapter 19. Matthew 19. And beginning in verse 16. And behold, a young man came up to him, that's Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There it is again. (laughs) The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? So, good start. He doesn't ask an obnoxious question the way that the lawyer did. This young man knows truth on some level and seems to understand, at least in part, that there's something lacking about, or there's something something maybe lacking about the way he's following the law, and he's decided to ask Jesus about it. It looks to me to be a sincere line of questioning from this young man, which is all good until Jesus answers him. In verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So here again is somebody who knew the truth. He knew the law, supposed that there was something lacking in the way that he went about practicing the law, asked Jesus about it, and Jesus says, look, your knowledge requires you to demonstrate this thing. You want to be perfect? Do this. And the the thing about this story that is particularly unfortunate to me is that it really seems like this young man knew Jesus was right. We're not told that, so I don't know. But that's how it looks. He doesn't argue with him. It seems like Jesus tells him, this is what you're lacking, and the young man knows, yep, he's right. And he goes away and does nothing. You don't have to live all that long to run across situations like these. You just don't where you're talking with somebody and there is something that is true and they can see it and it's right there and they know what they have to do and for some reason they just dig in and they just won't do it. It's sad. It's sad. And that's how this story ends. 
in sadness. And if I could close with a point that Jesus makes about that idea specifically in John chapter 7. John chapter 7 and verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So Jesus says, in order to know the truth, ultimately our desire for God's will has to supersede our own. Not that we don't have our own will, because we absolutely do. And not that our own will won't ever disagree with or clash with God's will, because it absolutely will. We even see that with Jesus himself. His prayer in the garden is, I don't want to do this. Not my will, but your will be done. We see some of this happening. And when that happens with us, Jesus says, if ultimately we don't have a proper desire and appreciation for God's will above our own, it may be that truth is right there in front of us and we will miss it. And Jesus knew that. And that's why one of the last things he prayed for, literally, in his life was, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Because he knew that the world needs people, needs Christians, to stand on these things, to stand on these kinds of principles. They're not complicated, but they are difficult and profoundly important. And the more confused our culture becomes, the more we are to do that. The more resolutely, the more aggressively, we are to stand on God's truth because people need it. Because God needs that of us. Your classmates, your coworkers, your employees, your boss, your teammates, your kids, your spouse, your country, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Me, I need you. And you need me. We need each other to stand with absolute resolution. Even more so as our culture becomes increasingly hostile towards the truth. Absolute resolution on the truth. On God's objective, attainable, actionable truth in the interest ultimately of his will and not mine. That's what Jesus prayed for us. That's what he did. That's what all the great characters in the Bible did. And that's what God requires of all of us too. And so it may be that you have been convicted by the truth and you're ready to become a Christian today. If that's the case... We would love to talk with you about that. We have water ready, and we can help you become a Christian tonight. Or maybe you've been a Christian, and you found that your walk in truth is just not right, that you aren't sanctified in the truth the way that Jesus prayed that you would be. And if that's the case, we'd love to help you too. If there's any way we can help you spiritually, we invite you to step into an aisle and make your way to the front as we stand and sing.